Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to our first playoff episode of 2022. I've been waiting so long for this, Cody. It's just it's glorious to say that out loud, and I feel like we had a we had ourselves a weekend. Um, how are you feeling after all the game once? We really had a great weekend, to be honest. Maybe not great. I don't know if great's the right word. We had a good weekend. But yeah, I agree with you. I feel like it's been two months now, and I'm like, we just need to see this in the playoffs. It's finally here, but I actually have a bigger question to ask you about this. How do you feel about the first weekend of the playoffs? Like, what's your general vibe when all of these games are happening so quickly? I like it, but it's a little too intense. Yeah. And in this season, I'm feeling it in particular because I actually bit off more than I could chew. I We've talked about it on previous episodes. I was like, bring me the playoffs now. Let's fast forward to the playoffs. I need Celtics Nets in my eyeballs, going into my brain. And now I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Celtics Nets game one. Let's stop the other seven series and set them aside and have the Celtics and the Nets series kind of be treated like a pre-NBA finals. And we'll just, we'll get all the media coverage in there. Everybody can go to New York. Then they can go back to Boston. It's a nice, easy Northeast commute. And then when that is done and we can take a deep breath, one of those teams can get the rest that they deserve. And they can recharge and recuperate so they, we can see effective basketball when they play the other teams. And we'll let the other series continue in about a week and a half. How do you th- feel about that proposal? So in this proposal, like, is every other player from the other teams, are they showing up? Are they required to go and then, like, sit on separate times? Like, you know when you see, like, a state championship basketball game, like, one side of the stanchion is one team, the other side is the other team? Like, I I think the NBA players have to do that. They have to pick a side when they show up to this game then. So you're you're taking it a step farther. You're saying that all of the teams, the 14 other teams in the other series should fly to the Northeast as well as part of the media package. And then one has to sit on, you know, you have to pick your team. I see. What about with the Nets? I mean, would the uh, uh, Bucks have to do that? Would they have to pick because they're going to, you know, play one of those teams in this hypothetical scenario that will never happen? How did we start the podcast like this today? Uh, I'll tell you how. It's because that Nets Celtics game one. I think it's got to be the best game one of the playoffs in NBA history. I, I mean, one, the quality of the game just in terms of drama and all that, but two, the skill level, the intensity of the teams, the quality of the defense, the quality of some of the offensive shot making, the sort of the little rivalries going on. I, I mean, I could not think of an open. I mean, there's certainly been great game ones, but that was like that was like a conference finals or a finals game in game one of the first round. It it I'm not ready for it. I'm not ready to derail this whole thing, but I'm going to propose a different game one because while this had the intensity of it and you had the rivalry and you had like the the back and forth physicality that we'll all get to, what about the, uh, I actually don't remember what year, it was either 2017 or 2018, the LeBron 50-point loss against the Warriors in the finals, 
The uh, no, that's not- in the finals. Uh, no, I'm saying game one of the first round. Oh, you're talking. For, I thought you were talking all game ones ever of no, all time. No, no, no. I'm saying the first round. See, that's how good the game was. You immediately went yeah. to all time. I'm just saying. I've never seen a first round game like that outside of like the occasional. You know, I think we mentioned it recently. 1995. You had Utah, which was a 60-win team, and they would go on to three conference finals in a row after this and two NBA finals against the Bulls, and they had Stockton and Malone, uh, and they were maybe the favorite to win the title, and they lost in this crazy Game 5 series in Houston. Like Games in that series were great. You can get sometimes two really good teams in the first round, but... This this was crazy. This was um, I've watched the game twice, and I rarely ever. I, it's hard for me to get an entire first round game done once. Sometimes <laughs> I went back for seconds. See, okay, I I have some homework for for the listers out there. So, 2009 first round series between the Bulls and the Celtics. Celtics involved again. It uh, game one ended in 105-103. Somebody go back and rewatch that, and then immediately rewatch the game between the Celtics and Nets, and tell you can tell us, tell us. Which game do you think was the better game one? But Ben, you, you introduced it. You're very excited about it. You have a couple of watches. Ben, what are some of the things that you would like to talk about with this game? What are the, the, the fiery takes that you just can't hold in after watching this game twice? Fiery takes that I can't hold in. Um, boy, you're really putting me on the spot. I, I, Kevin Durant gets a pass for bad games. Is that what you're looking for? We're starting there. No, I'm wondering what you're looking for. I'm trying to understand what the what you're trying to elicit out of me. I have a lot of analytical reactions to the game, but I think the only thing that I have said in the in the takedom zone is that and it's consistent with how I feel about volume scores historically. For whatever reason, a lot of volume scores get a pass because people mentally index on their great shots and they mentally index on their great games. And so one of the funny things that I heard yesterday after the game was, well, Durant's not going to shoot like that for the rest of the series. Actually, let me raise that one step further. Uh, Probably my favorite member of the Fab Five, which might be my favorite basketball team ever assembled, Jalen Rose, at halftime of the game, said that Kevin Durant is going to score 30 points in the second half, and I had to reattach my head after I heard that. Because in all seriousness, he either didn't watch the first half, which is what I'm going to assume, or you're just not understanding why he's shooting the way he's shooting. Because I think my number one X's and O's takeaway from the game is the Celtics' defensive scheme against Durant, very similar to what they played against him in March in a video that we covered on Thinking Basketball YouTube channel. It is to switch these big bodies onto him. So you can switch you can switch Tatum onto him. You can switch Jalen Brown onto him. You can switch Grant Williams onto him. They're all big. They're all physical. They're all basically stronger than... I know, what am I saying, basically? They're all clearly stronger than Kevin Durant. They're all big. Like, I think Grant Williams might be the shortest or something, and he's 6'6 with a good wingspan. Uh, they push him off his spots... And then they know they have someone sitting in his driving gap. And typically, uh, they'll, they'll move Durant toward the extra defender sitting in his driving gap. And when you have someone like Marcus Smart digging down into your dribble and you're 6'10", like Kevin Durant, that leads to a lot of the fumbles, the turnovers, uh, the steals, trouble getting into the gaps. He didn't pass very well yesterday. But I think, again, that's the scheme. I think 
if the Nets want to play him in that elbow area and pinch post and try to isolate him and have him face up and get to the mid-range, the Celtics are going to sit on all those sweet spots and put it, push him off all those sweet spots, just like they did in March. And if the Nets don't adjust, which I think was impossible to expect at halftime, which is why I thought Jalen Rose's comments were so strange... Um, the issue is the shot diet, not the shot making. I actually thought Durant made four or five insane shots yesterday, including the one at the end of the game that bounced off the front of the rim, bounced off the t- tip of the backboard, hit the shot clock, went and got a hot dog, and then came back and went in to put the nets up or tie the game down in the final minute. Um, but it's the difference between I have my comfortable sweet spot, one dribble, wide open 16-footer, or other people are creating for me and I'm getting stuff uh, at the rim. I'm getting wide open threes. And what we saw yesterday, which was, I mean, I don't remember how many shots he had. What, he, 24 or 25 field goals? We, we probably should access this on the World Wide Web. But uh, most of those shots throughout the game were extremely difficult shots. And he actually, you know, because he's Kevin Durant, he's able to make a couple. But I think that's... That's my biggest takeaway from the game is can the Nets make offense easier for him without, you know, um, completely sacrificing Kyrie or something? Obviously, you can make it easier for him if you just completely tilt everything toward Durant. But the goal is to make it easier for Durant while really making it easier for the team. That's the goal. Yeah, I'm looking up the the box score right now. I know you love box score so much, but he, he had 23 <laughs> points on 24 shots. Uh, during the game but something you were talking about chasing him off his spots even like especially when he had the ball something that really jumped out to me and this was something that that I was really attuned to with Al Horford Al Horford definitely seemed to understand the assignment where he he came out with like a level of off-ball physicality like there were a couple times where Durant might be cutting through the paint to like you know switch from one end to the other end of the perimeter and when he comes through Al Horford defending somebody else just kind of throws his body back just a little subtly just to give Durant just a little bit of a shot to be like hey man you're going to get hit pretty much anywhere you try and move like you're this isn't the regular season anymore like at this point there's going to be physicality no matter what you're trying to do so I think that that level of getting acclimated to like nothing is going to be comfortable like on the ball off the ball like every moment that you're trying to move around in your off court uh, your your on court set is going to be difficult and and not just the physicality there there was um Horford did it off the top of my head at least once or twice and then the entire team understanding if you're coming from the baseline and you're coming off pin down screens or the Nets love to, uh, he's been running the same play since he was in Oklahoma City. He's kind of under the basket and there's another big there and they do a little two-man stack and Durant can fly up and catch it around the free throw line area. Any of these actions that they like for him away from the ball that aren't in isolation, the Celtics are early to switch off the ball. They're jumping a guy out into that passing lane. Horford's not just bumping him. He's stepping out and saying like, Whoever has the basketball right now has got to make a brilliant pass or someone else on the Nets has to cut. Bruce Brown has to make a timely cut or something because what we don't want to do is let Durant catch the ball in his office in a highly advantageous position and go to work. We want to make it hard for him all night. We want him to expend calories. And in a sense, the final possession uh, defensively for the Celtics is exactly what they want, which is... If we need to throw a double team at you, and in the second half they blitzed and trapped Durant at times, and selectively they did it with Kyrie as well, um, 
we want you to churn up the shot clock and try to do everything you can to get a shot off and dribble around and pass it out. And Durant ends up with that final possession out outside the three-point line with like four or five seconds on the shot clock. He's 30 feet away. He's got Jason Tatum in his grill and no open space to easily attack behind him. Um, The Celtics are going to walk through the series if that happens. And I don't think they're going to walk through the series, so there's going to be some changes. But that's what they're looking for defensively uh, in terms of the way they're approaching this. And, and I think now this is at least two games in a row. It's worked very, very well. So the big question now goes back to Steve Nash and, and his staff. Um, he doesn't have Ime Udoka as an assistant coach anymore to help him make these adjustments. So what can they do? That's literally going to be the question that I that I fire back at you. I feel like this, this X's and O's area is a lot more in your wheelhouse. If you were if if Steve Nash gave you a call right now, like you were interrupted by a phone call from him, and he was like, "How should I adjust to make life a little bit easier on offense? How can I counter some of these Boston Celtics defensive tactics? What should I do? What would you tell him?" Well, I don't want to I don't want to take over the team, um, but one, <laughs> one there's there's probably two things that are really interesting that jumped out just from rewatching game one. The first one is what I'll call kind of the Bruce Brown problem. Um, Actually, let's put a pin in that for a brief second. The Nets have this weird lineup construction, Cody, where they're playing like at least three people almost at all times who are point guard size, right? Six, three and under. I mean, if we include, include Brown in that group, you've got Brown, you've got Drogic, you've got, um, Kyrie, you have Seth Curry. Is there a fifth one I'm forgetting? Uh, yes, Patty Mills. Yeah, they, they have no players of in-between size. It's incredibly strange. And, of course, that was a, another big takeaway from the game yesterday where the Celtics pounded them on the glass. They not only got offensive rebounds and putbacks at key points in the game, but the other thing that happens defensively, this is another kind of X's and O's wrinkle on that end, is if Durant is out high guarding Tatum, which is where he was in game one. We'll see if they make an adjustment. You lose your other big body in the paint. So it's three point guards and Nick Claxton. And that means anytime there's a breakdown with Nick Claxton involved, um, there was a point in the first half where Mark Jackson on the telecast literally said, like, I wish Tatum would attack Claxton. And then he just attacked Claxton. And there's no one behind. There's no big bodies left behind. Or... If Claxton is low and you get past one of the perimeter defenders, then he's all that's left. Nick Claxton has to be your Rudy Gobert. And of course, Nick Nick Claxton, uh, he does have nice moments, but he's not, there's way too much to ask for him to play that role. So they have this weird lineup construction. Um, On offense, there's a trade off with Brown out there, which is that he's a non shooter, basically. And so I think in situations where he's one pass away or he's an immediate outlet valve for Durant in the spots where he likes to operate, Boston can slide over and help one help one pass away without being punished. So that's one area where possibly changing the player or changing where Brown is or putting him in a position where he can cut. Because if he's at the top, it still might be a hard cut for him. And this is not the same thing as Cleveland Cody. This is not the play-in game where you can just get trapped and give Bruce Brown the ball with 30 feet of space to, to short roll pass and make decisions. So that's one thing. The other thing late in the game that became apparent is I wonder how they're going to use the Kyrie KD pick and roll, which essentially is really a, like a small, small pick and roll. Because if um, Kyrie is involved, and actually I'll, I'll extend this to a third point, which is getting Durant 
more activity in motion and moving more when he has the ball. When they're stationary when he has the ball, the Celtics can load up on them. And so there's a play in the second quarter where Durant gets a, a little handoff and then a screen in the middle of the court, actually gets an and one, makes another one of those really hard shots, smart fouls him from behind. And just an action like that, where Bruce Brown was the guy handing the ball off to him, but if that's Kyrie Irving, you can't leave him. And now Durant has an easy pass to a popper who's an elite shooter and ball handler and decision maker. So these kind of little wrinkles are the things I'm going to be looking for going forward if I were the Nets. So something that's really interesting, and, and I thought of this when you were talking about the odd roster construction of the Nets right now, is that all of the Nets creators, save for Kevin Durant, are all of these small guys. Like, you need to have Seth Curry out there. And Seth Curry had enough, like, especially in that first quarter, I thought Seth Curry was doing a nice job of creating. He had a couple nice pull-up jumpers. He had a couple, at least one nice dunk pass. Uh, but the Celtics, on the other hand, what they have, and we've hammered this home in the last few episodes, is the fact that all of their guys, their creators, the main guys that you want out there, can all rim protect. They're all of these big bodies that don't give up any kind of an advantage in the paint. And even like Jalen Brown, who I've talked about, is the weakest defender in their starting lineup when, when Rob Will is there, not a weak defender by any stretch of the imagination. He had a couple spectacular hustle blocks like at the rim, like making these tough uh, uh, plays that are making shots just that much more difficult for the offense. So when you have players that can double down and do both of these things, it makes your job that much easier. And like, no offense to Patty Mills who can hustle. Patty Mills can try as much as he wants, but he's not going to be able to do the athletic sorts of plays that Jalen Brown can do. And so that's just like physically an advantage with roster construction that the Boston Celtics have right now over the Nets. Yeah. So the Nets started the game with Seth Curry on Daniel Tice because they just don't really have a place to put him. And as I said, maybe you could think about putting Durant down there. That's going to be an interesting thing I'm going to watch going forward, because I think the Nets defense, it's probably easier for the Nets to succeed defensively, succeed defensively with the talent that they have and with the scheme that they've run all year if Durant is lower on the floor than with him 30 feet away um, out outside or worrying, you know, they soft switch a lot as well because Durant's a big body. So you run him through screens on the perimeter and they just pass him off to someone else. And then now he's standing 30 feet away guarding Derek White. And it's like you just, again, Seth Curry under the basket is not going to cut it on offensive rebounding and things like that. So th this is to me what makes this series so interesting because, of course, the flip side is um, – you do have one of the best offensive players really in basketball history with Durant. You have a guy who's on fire with Kyrie Irving. They are, you know, we're focusing on the weakness, but the strength is you put Seth Curry out there and you have another lethal shooter. And to your point, man, he made some really nice extra passes in the first half. And that's why this offense has been so good with those three guys out there since the Seth Curry, James Harden trade um, at the trade deadline. And that's what makes it such a compelling series going forward. But again, this is going to be something that as the, as the series goes, like this is game one, I feel like the Nets are going to have to be overtasked at some point. Like maybe you can carry that intensity for a couple of games, but after a while, like the Celtics can just keep coming at you with this, this plethora of guys that like Derek White is coming off the bench and doing some stuff. And like, do we really trust someone like Goran Dragic to be able to continue even like the, the, whatever efficiency he had yesterday or a couple days ago, whatever it was, time's a flat circle or whatever else. Like, is Goran Dragic going to keep that up for a seven-game series as much as somebody like Derek White coming off the bench for the Celtics? So I think just the the sheer... I can't think of the word, but the, the idea that the Celtics can keep a, going a and going, whereas the, the Nets, I feel like, are just going to... I don't know. They they won't have enough to carry it for a full series. Yeah, I feel like attrition is what you're Yeah, you're yeah, that's to. exactly yeah. it, yes. Yeah, um, 
And I think that's a great, great point to bring up because even Kyrie, that was one game. Um, I think it's been helpful for him to play less this season, be fresher right now, be part-time, whatever it may be. But then you get into the series and you get deeper in the series and your legs start to go. The Celtics, to me, are conditioned for this intensity. And the game yesterday, yes, it had it, it legitimately had like a finals feel in terms of intensity, but also we've been on Boston for a couple months now, talked about them quite a bit, looked at their film quite a bit. This is how they play all the time. This is how they played the Nets when the Nets came to town in March. And again, um, there was some great shot making in that game from the Nets. I think that's something that they're always going to have in their bag, but it kind of comes and goes. And so I wonder, is this the best game we've seen from Kyrie in the series simply because of the combination of, you know, variance and luck and fatigue? What happens as we get later in the series? On the flip side, I still expect a, a Durant game or two that looks like what Kyrie had yesterday. But again, the the Nets are, are going to be in trouble, in my opinion, Cody, if they don't make life easier for him on a possession-to-possession basis going forward for the rest of the series. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I actually think my take going forward for this series is that at the end of it, Kyrie might have better offensive numbers throughout the series than Durant. Because I feel like the Celtics, the way that they're built, are built to not stop but handle somebody that plays like Durant. Somebody that's bigger, not necessarily the quickest off the off the uh, off the bounce like that. But Kyrie, for instance, like you get a switch on like Jason Tatum to Kyrie. There are a couple times that Kyrie dusted him, especially later in the game. Like Tatum's a pretty solid point of attack defender. But Kyrie, like when he starts dancing, there's probably only like White and Smart on that team are two of the guys that I would trust being able to put on him. Whereas like Durant, Durant's not necessarily gonna blow by Brown. He's not gonna necessarily blow by Horford or Tatum. Whereas Kyrie, I trust his blow-by ability against these other guys just a little bit more and I almost feel like that's going to be like the Celtics are aware of that and it almost feels like the Celtics are going to be like we're just going to really really force Kyrie to be the guy while we you know throw all of our weapons that are perfect for Durant at him yeah I I buy that Um, although I do I I know some of the plays you're talking about and having just done a rewatch I do think they were miscommunications with the Celtics D where again in these situations, they're not trying to be heroes defensively and stonewall you. They're trying to funnel you into help. And these little moments where there's miscommunication, and that's going to happen, even though the Celtics are so buttoned up, that's going to happen when you get fatigued, when your intensity ramps up. Even uh, at least one of the plays you're talking about with Tatum, even though he's turning and funneling to help and he expects help to be there, man, it's the fourth quarter and you've played the game like Jason Tatum played. 
you're going to be a half step slower on your slide anyway. And so once he's gone, it's like, oh, there's no help. That's a layup versus you're sliding with him in the first quarter and there's no help. And you're still kind of there to provide a little resistance. I can't believe we've made it this far without talking about Tatum's game. Um, I, I don't know what you thought, Cody. I thought he was by far the best player on the floor. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I, yeah. I thought, just thought he was phenomenal. And I wasn't shocked that I think it's fair to say he outplayed Durant. I was shocked by how good Tatum was on a night where not only did Durant have the struggles that we've talked about, I think almost entirely inflicted by the Celtics defense, but uh, but Tatum himself was a huge part of that. I don't remember ever seeing anyone block a Kevin Durant jumper in isolation on an island and then come back and drop the Paul Pierce, Al Harrington three at the end of the third quarter. I mean, his decision-making his passing, and especially his defense all night were just really, really stellar. I, I was definitely more blown away by his defense. Like, on ball, like you were talking about with Durant, there were a couple plays on the nail when he was poking it away. Like, he was he was just everywhere. He was really the glue holding that defense together, I felt like. There's one thing, I actually, I thought there was one area where if I were the Nets, it's something that I would maybe start off right away with Tatum, and that was when they started doubling him. While I felt that Tatum did a good job of creating, like if he got some spates or blew by somebody, he was doing a good job of setting up his teammates. But there were a couple times where I felt like he was maybe a little frantic or a little overmatched when he got doubled. Like maybe didn't quite feel as comfortable in those situations. And I think those are going to be the areas where Marcus Smart's really going to step up offensively because, you know, we saw some great passes, including the extraordinarily patient final play from Smart. And one of the best kickout passes I've ever seen on another play where he like hung in the air, he like faked it and then waited another beat and threw it around him. I don't remember who he kicked it out to, but it was really pretty to watch. But that is one thing that I'm like, I bet you they're going to start doubling uh, Tatum much earlier in the game I, I feel uh personally vindicated by that last pass because for years as someone who has studied passing and has put a lot of sort of different layers of this is a missed pass this is a, here's a guy in the corner you could hit it to one of the criticisms i've received um and with the internet so who, who knows where it's coming from but there's a lot of people who say at the end of games when i talk about passing ability They'll be, oh, you can't make that pass. There's five seconds left. You can't make that pass. There's three seconds left. You can't make that pass. It's too high pressure. You can't make that pass. You have to default to the shot that you know. And this is not the first time this season. I feel like this is happening more in recent NBA years, maybe even this season than ever before. Passes at the very, very, very end of the clock. I believe there's about two seconds left. I think the ball may still have been in Smart's hand under two. It might have been like 1.8. Or something like that. And as you said, just an extraordinary decision at the end of the game. Tatum makes the cut. Um, Durant and Kyrie. Durant's looking at the clock, ball watching. Tatum Tatum cuts behind him. I think he said he was going for an offensive rebound, which is typically what happens. The guy shoots early and there's an offensive rebound. But uh, I just, I love that pass. Buzzer beating passes. That's what that's what the next video is going to be on. The, yeah, the level of awareness just from the, all of the Celtics on that play really typifies just their their chemistry, their how they play together. Like that was all, all timer ending play. I loved that so much. Like I when I watched it live, I literally only watched the last eight seconds of that game. Like my wife was driving, I was in the car, I fired it up on my phone, and like Brown was bringing it down the court. And I'm like, oh my god, this game's over. And then like I saw the smart passes in my head. I'm like, oh, that's the game. He just screwed up. And then like Tatum was a tornado, and the ball went in, and I was like. 
that was it. That was, that was the win. Like that, unbel- just unbelievable. That was awesome. I loved that. Okay, so before we move on to any other series, how are you feeling? Did, did you learn anything? Did you do you feel like you have a grasp of what to expect the rest of the way? Are you feeling better or worse about one of these teams than you did forty eight hours ago? I Ben, I almost I don't want to use the word hate, but I almost hate the first weekend of the playoffs. I, it just it feels like I need to have all of these takes after I mainline like tons and tons of hours of basketball when I'm just trying to soak it all in. And I I don't necessarily know if I, I learned that many things. Like we talked about some of the things that I would like to see, but who knows? Game two might look completely different. Like that's just how the playoffs go. Like the first game doesn't necessarily dictate how the rest of it's going to go. So I don't know. I honestly don't know beyond what we just talked about. That's why, Cody, this should be the pre-finals. <laughs> and we could get all of our all of our take buckets filled up after a weekend like this. Um, there were seven other playoff series, and if you've listened to this show in the few years that it's been around, you know that I am like Cody, and I also do not sort of mainline a bunch of game ones and then have a ton of new thoughts usually. So the big question I think for both of us probably after the first weekend is if we look at the other seven series, is there anything you felt like you learned? that is changing your opinion a little bit. I mean, I'll give you an easy one right away, and I haven't seen most of this game. I've seen a couple plays, I think. I turned it off. Um, Scotty Barnes' injury, right? That yep. is that. I, I already thought Toronto was going to have a hard time with that matchup. That would be something that I think you monitor what that injury looks like if he's going to miss a couple of games. It seems to me it would be very difficult for the Raptors to overcome that. Uh, outside of something like health... Any other series or anything out out there um, that stood out or that you watch the game and you're like, hmm, okay, when's game two? Because I'm going to start looking for this. I think my number two series is Grizzlies-Timberwolves. I think that's okay. my number two series. And can I tell you the thing that jumped off, jumped off the screen that just blew my mind that I didn't know if it would actually happen and it's starting to happen? Do you, do you, do you want to hear it? I do, yes. I'm, I'm on pins and needles. Do you want to hear this? Ben, Ja Morant plays like there's no defense out there. Who is it? Ja Morant plays like there is no defense out there. His ability to get into the paint, to get to the basket, defies logic. Like It doesn't matter who is guarding him. Like He's just there. And he's, his head's at the rim, and he's drawing a foul. Next play down, his head's at the rim. And he's drawing a foul. I don't know if this guy knows how to grift because he would have had 35 free throws if he went to the hardened school of grifting, but he didn't. I, 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 that, that was my main takeaway from that game is John Morant is better than I thought he was from the regular season based on that one game. That's my hot take. That's my hottest take. The hardened school of grifting. Um, that sounds like a movie that I don't even know the studio. It's not Marvel. Whoever puts out all those studios about fantastic beasts and schools and wizards and magicians. That's what I, that's all I'm picturing is like is like Harden in a in a wizard cloak with his beard really grown out teaching and, you know, like in front of the entire class, like and down and rip through and up and down and rip through and up. Um, so I, I was thinking more like the uh, the Harden school for grifting who can't grift good, but want to grift good. You know, the kind of school that needs to be at least three times bigger than that. Um, that was a good reference. Uh, John Morant. Yeah. I've been waiting. I, I, this is, I, I will take a step back and use that point to inject one of my favorite 
analytical ideas for years and years and years, which is you can see stuff in the regular season that can translate to the playoffs. And in this case, it's just his first step, burst, agility, n- number of counters. I do think Minnesota hedging uh, plays into Morant's strengths as a penetrator. Whereas some team who could maybe give him a different look or even a drop or something like that, if you dropped against him and he had to go into Rudy Gobert, now he's going to have to start making the floater maybe a little bit more. I mean, we'll see how this progresses. But uh, yeah, this is this is what I expected from Ja and and... It seems like a matchup where he's going to continue to be able to touch the paint relentlessly. And, you know, what does that do to the Memphis offense or how does Minnesota handle that? Maybe that's an interesting thing going forward. I'm not surprised the Timberwolves won a game, as we said um, on the preview show with Dave Dufour. Minnesota can easily win a game or two in that series. The, the thing I'm interested in is whether they look like they can win that third and fourth game. Because with a young team, with the kind of, you know, their offense has been great. That game was crazy. What was the final score of that game? 164 to 148 or something? <laughs> the game was nuts. So I'm interested to see, you know, how, how the pace of the series plays out. Is, is game two the same? If it has the same dynamic, then I think we have to come back and have an emergency podcast meeting and, you know, discuss what this means for the Grizzlies. But maybe it'll settle down a little bit. And uh, and Memphis will will write the ship. Yeah, I think that was a series that personally, when I was going through it, I said I said that Memphis would end up winning it in six. So the Timberwolves coming away with a game like that's going to happen if it's going to be a six game series. And, you know, I think throughout the playoffs, too, if, if you don't mind me just like spreading my my thought process across all that I was seeing, I think the thing that just continually year after year is showing um what is important for an offensive player and it's a bil- an ability to drive and get into the paint to get two feet into the paint we saw that with carl anthony towns we saw that with anthony edwards we saw that with john morant we saw that with donovan mitchell like whenever a player is able to just not ignore a defense but just call fo- force a defense to go into rotation a lot more off the dribble it's it's probably the most valuable offensive skill a perimeter player can have in in the playoffs at least can we jump to the what I assume is your number three series, since you just mentioned it. Absolutely. Is that, is it, uh, is it Dallas, Utah? Yeah, it is my number three series. See, now that, that in, in a normal situation, in, in like a normally calibrated NBA experience, is a great first round series. Whereas the Celtics and the Nets, I, I don't know what's, that's like I'm watching the NBA finals in the first round. It's very strange. But this Dallas, Utah series, two good teams. Two good teams that could upset a team in the second round if everything goes well. This this type of nice regular season portfolio, 50-ish wins, strong point differentials. In the case of Utah, when they're clicking, they had the best offense in the league. Dallas has a nice defense, and they have Luka Doncic. But the problem is they don't have Luka Doncic. <laughs> yeah, that I, I just feel I feel so cheated out of this. I want to mm, see yep. I, I want to see Luka, man. I want to see Luka. And it, it's as of recording this right now, I believe he's still doubtful for Game Two. That makes me think he's not going to play in game two. I mean, we know, I, I said this last week, it's, we're, pretty, we're pretty certain he's going to play before he's completely healed because it's, it's the playoffs, and that's just how it works, and that's how he seems to roll. But if he's still doubtful and things aren't progressing super well, game two, it's game two of that series tonight, right? Is it? I, I honestly I don't know. Tonight. Yeah. I, I flip it on and see what's on and I watch it. <laughs> so you do genuinely mainline, you, you put them right in your veins and just accept whatever the, 
the basketball gods give you on the television. Yeah, I just, you know, I sit in my chair where it like hooks open my eyes and I just you get like the Ludovico lie. treatment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's exactly it. Yeah, you know, it's the, the 1973 film references go over extremely well <laughs> on um <laughs> A Clockwork Orange if anyone hasn't seen that film. Um okay, so Dallas, Utah, I agree, I feel cheated. The 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 Mitchell dynamic was interesting because he had a very bumpy first half where Bogdanovich, it looked like, again, this could be a matchup thing, but they were using his size and picking on, you know, sort of the way Dallas has matched up defensively. And then in the third quarter, I actually thought for the Jazz to get going, goes back to your point, Cody, Mitchell started touching the paint, started getting past people, and he didn't overall really have a, what I would consider a good game from him. But that stretch, I think from like the third quarter to early in the fourth quarter, where Utah started to get on a run, took over the game, um, he had he had plenty of points, but also just playmaking by getting into the teeth of the defense. And yeah, if they go up 2-0, they steal another game on the road. It's one of those weird things where the Mavs would have been better off not having home court given Luca's timetable because now if even if Luca comes back for game three, they're gonna have to go on the road to a, you know, elevation, tough crowd in Utah. It's it's uh this is gonna be a fun game. I'm looking forward to this game. Oh, absolutely. And I want to go to the Bogdanovich Mitchell uh interplay here. So when when you have an offense, and they, they went to this a lot of times when they were really trying to get Bogdanovich posting up maybe 18 feet away, and he's really tremendous from that range. Like he has a nice he's he's a big dude, he's a hefty dude, he's strong, he has a great mid-range game, bag of tricks, he can step back and and post fade. But the thing is, is as efficient as that might be you're not forcing the rest of the defense to necessarily make split-second decisions. Like, obviously, every second that you're playing defense or offense or whatever it is, you have to be thinking out there. But it's different from when you have a guy that's streaking into the paint and you have these other four defensive players that have to immediately be like, okay, I have my guy, these guys are here, I have to rotate over and stop this guy that can detonate to the rim and just throw it down at some point. That's just going to going to stress a defense so much more than kind of this slow down we're going to have a, a post-up sort of situation and you know I found Mitchell's game really weird like that that first half it almost felt like he was letting them off the hook he was like I'm going to take a lot more of these these pull-up jumpers I'm going to ease into the game but at the beginning of the third quarter when he's like all right I got to start taking it to the rim and I think that's when it as you said it definitely the tenor of the game started changing when he did that he you remember he took that deep breath yes yes moment? yeah yes yeah. it it definitely felt like it's it's really interesting. Tatum said something in the post in the interview right after the game winning shot yesterday that I think maybe we've overlooked a little bit. He said it was the first time in three years we've played in front of our crowd, and so for these players, for some of these teams, they either missed twenty twenty playoffs or played in the bubble, and then in twenty twenty one, remember fans only came back what midway through the playoffs. Um, in terms of just like kind of league wide having crowds back. So it is possible even for guys that have been there and, you know, Mitchell's been in the playoffs uh, since his rookie season as a key contributor. It is possible that you finally get back. It's the first 82 game season since 2019. Um, the crowd is there and you kind of arrive. And in his case with Utah, all of the stuff off the court, kind of with all the drama that they always seem to have. I don't know why they always have so much drama there in Utah. Uh, but, the, you know, that 
felt like to me a game where he's he almost premeditatedly didn't want to didn't want to press the first half right and was kind of trying to let the game come to him if you will and then in the second half uh finally got comfortable and like found a rhythm or something like that i don't know it was very interesting to see a player exude that like he just he took that huge deep breath and he's like oh okay all right now we've got we've broken the ice i'm ready to perform yeah in before that play i'm glad you brought that play up because before that you know i was jotting down some notes and i actually wrote him like you know i think mitchell's just kind of getting into the flow of it i don't know if he's in his head or anything this is a he's been on the big stage he's performed here but when he did that like i don't want to play armchair psychologist but i'm like huh that seemed to be a lot more uh i'm lost for words but it seemed a lot more more cathartic for him to get that shot to go down and i think it was a switch on the bertons where later he just started abusing bertons on that switch but uh yeah, I found that interesting. But another player for the Jazz, uh, Rudy Gobert. Rudy Gobert. This I, I don't know what your top games are of players that didn't make a field goal, but Gobert might be right up there. Especially two lists. He has two different lists. Players that didn't make a field goal and players that took one or fewer field goals during a game. Gobert's impact has to be right up there with everyone else that did that. That's pretty cool. I like that. I Someone should, someone should work on such games... The one I always think of is Scottie Pippen in game one of the 98 Eastern Conference Finals against the Pacers, where he did make like two shots, I want to say, in the game. But it was one of those games where a dude's like two for 10, you know, has like seven points, maybe of a couple of assists or something like that, and yet was a massive, massive factor in the game, largely because of the way he changed the offense for the other team with his defense. So... Yeah, that's a fun stat. Gobert 0 for 1 in the game, did grab 17 rebounds, 3 blocks, and of course just stretches where when he's out there, his presence is making it hard for Jalen Brunson and Spencer Dinwiddie. I had a couple really nice switches on Spencer Dinwiddie as well. And you know, Dallas just not having enough, just basically not having enough offensive juice with that lineup when Gobert's able to take away those easy shots kind of felt like it was the difference in the second half. Is they, they finished with uh, a 104 offensive rating in the game. Uh, I, another thing, you know, we've gone this far, probably a good thing to stick at the end of the episode as an addendum. <laughs> what, did, what did you think of the officiating? It, oh, my it, God. It felt, uh, well, okay, you know, go ahead. Go ahead. So we're actually going to need to circle back if we're talking about officiating. Because I don't, I don't think we can have, I don't think we can have an officiating conversation unless we talk about that Boston Brooklyn game. Why? Because you know sometimes, sometimes it was officiated one way, and then sometimes it was completely officiated the other way. And from possession to possession, you can't figure out which one it's going to be. Yeah. So okay, let, let's paint a couple plays out there. So I have the aforementioned Horford just throws himself back into Durant, and like that's totally fine. That's playoff basketball. Durant has this play where he like drives up and maybe he has his arm out a little bit and takes a step back, called for an offensive foul. I thought that was pretty weak. And then we have Kyrie Irving driving into the paint. Marcus Smart, I thought Marcus Smart did a good job staying in front of him, hands straight up. Kyrie go, Irving goes up, and Marcus Smart's face fouls him. They call the well, foul. Well, that's a foul. Yeah. yeah. No, you can't You can't foul a shooter. If, you're, if your face hits a shooter, uh, that's obviously a defensive foul. I'm being sarcastic in case <laughs> you can't tell. I, I, thought that, I thought that Durant push-off was a great call because oh, I, th- okay. I think sometimes you can't see that little left arm shimmy that a guy gives you when he, when you can't get by the defender. My thing with the officials probably since the beginning of time 
is less about these evolution of the game, rule changes. Maybe you'll let somebody carry it a little bit more. Maybe the moving screens are a little bit looser. It's more about just the spirit of contact in basketball. And if you're a defender and you beat a guy to a spot and he can't get by you and then he has to push you, that to me, that should always be an offensive foul just every time. Wait, I, for, for the offensive player or the defensive player? Off, if you can't get by your man and you have to push him out of the way with your off arm, that should be an offensive foul. Oh, yeah. 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 You don't agree? No, I, I agree with you. But I thought, I thought based on the physicality of the rest of the game, that felt a little lesser than everything. So, like, in theory, I agree with you. But that specific play, I watched it a couple times and I was like, eh. But there's a ton of that's that was the weird thing about that game is there were a ton of touch calls that I think on second watch, they actually got a ton of them, quote unquote, right. But they were a different level of contact. Like there's a there's a play where uh, Claxton gets fouled on an offensive rebound attempt where he doesn't seem to have much of a chance to get the rebound. But I think Horford actually slaps his left arm. And you can see it on the replay, does slap his left arm, but it's like, well, okay, that's one way to call the game. And then you get other plays, which I think is the right call, where like um, Smart had that crazy vertical rule of verticality contest on Durant, where there was a ton of contact Mm. at the rim. Do you remember that one? Yeah, I'm actually thinking of a different play. No, I don't recall that one. Okay, well, either way, I just thought that that game was, I think you're circling back to that game because it had the most... Um, fluctuations between like one style and a more physical playoff style. And I'm, I'm, we've talked about this all season and I'm interested because opening weekend offensive efficiencies, 114.2. And, you know, there were a ton of fouls, almost 11 shooting fouls per 100, which is really, really high. Hmm. And whether that's, you know, it's too small of a sample to say, is it just from the John Morants of the world? Is it just from the games? But it's an interesting thing to monitor because I do think it's going to have ramifications downstream. Some teams and some defenders and some defenses and some teams that live with defense need a little bit more of that spirit of physicality contact to be allowed in the game. And there are other teams that uh, if you are allowed to initiate contact or if you are allowed to go to the Cody Hodeck school of grifting, the James Harden, <laughs> the James Harden school of grifters for grifters who can't grift too good. Um, that's going to help you a ton to the point where stuff like that could almost swing a series. If, the, if you have a series, it's close to a coin flip and they just set the, they set the precedent right now for the rest of the playoffs to be officiated that way. I think it's going to make, at least for me, when I, forecast or think about who I like in a matchup, I think it's a subtle factor that's actually going to make a difference. So I'm fascinated to see how the officials handle it, how they handle the quote-unquote points of emphasis that they re-emphasized recently that we already talked about a couple episodes ago, um, (laughs) and just how they handle the intensity of playoff basketball. Because I want to throw the actual officials on the floor a huge bone here. One, NBA officials are amazing. If you don't understand how good they are, go watch basketball at lower levels. Um, where it is extremely difficult to get officiating that is as accurate as what you see in the NBA. But two, um, when you get in a playoff series, Cody, and those guys play that hard on every possession, and it's like ramped up like that. Like there's a, there's a play, one of the last Brooklyn Nets possessions of that Nets-Celtics game where Durant is coming up. It's after a timeout, maybe a minute left in the game. It might be the one where actually, I think it's the play where Kyrie hits the shot to put him up 114-111. Durant comes up 
And he's either trying to set a screen or get to the elbow for a little elbow catch. And Tatum is trying to deny him his position. So he gets in front of him. And then Durant is pushing through him instead of going around him. And now both guys look like they're wrestling. And if you don't kind of even understand the dynamic, one, you're like, is there just, is there wrestling allowed? What's happening? Um, I think the broadcasters at some point may have said something like this. And two, who do you call the foul on? Is it Durant for pushing through him and not getting out of the way? Or is it for Tatum for impeding his progress? And these things are all magnified at the end of intense playoff games. And so it's just really, it's really, really difficult unless the officials have set a precedent that's very clear to handle that kind of hyper intensity, especially when you're like jostling for position away from the ball. Yeah. And there's certain players like Giannis, for instance, like this is a player that's very difficult to officiate because his game is predicated on creating contact and just being so much more physical and stronger than so many different guys. And, you know, not going to use anyone by name, but there's there's definitely a Bulls fan that's part of thinking basketball that was quite angry about a a, a phantom sixth foul that probably should have been on Giannis. Accor- according to this person, when some Bulls player like did this weak little box out thing and Giannis kind of jumped over him. But again, that's like some some physicality there that Giannis is forcing the issue and that puts the refs in a position that's like, all right, here's the superstar with, with five fouls, it's playoff intensity. Am I really going to give him a sixth foul here? So all of that goes into the conversation as well. Let me just provide some subtext for everyone out there. Cody is a Milwaukee Bucks fan, and the Chicago Bulls are playing the Milwaukee Bucks. Um, so we have a little bit of a, a civil war going on in the, in the thinking basketball world right now. So, um, But yeah, I, I agreed with you on that one. I, that didn't seem like anything abnormal to me. But when you have a guy like Giannis, this is the other thing. Uh, and we we talked about it a little earlier with the physicality of the Celtics and things like that. There isn't a perfect symmetry in basketball between officiating strong, powerful players and officiating small, weak players. And it's actually hard to get this. This probably will rankle your feathers. If you go back to our one true MVP conversation, I'm just guessing you won't like this. But the the thing that it takes, the force that it takes to throw Shaquille O'Neal off of his move is significantly more force than it takes to throw Allen Iverson off of his move. And a spirit of the permissible contact in basketball, if you look at like rhythm and balance and what the officials kind of have um, shorthand for emphasizing when it comes to contact, is did that contact influence that player in a way that kind of like threw off his move otherwise, threw off his balance, right? Made him fall over. Um if you're 300 pounds, if you're Giannis and you're flying down the lane like a bodybuilder and you're just a meteor crashing to the basket, you can get hit a little bit and you're just going to go right through it like it's water. But if you're six feet, 170 pounds, if you're John Morant and you go flying down the lane like that, especially as you start to jump, it doesn't take much to throw you off balance. So that, that asymmetry has been there for a long time and I don't know how you get it out of the game. I don't know if I disagree with you, though. Like, this goes... I'm thinking of Shaq as being a premier player that I think about. Like, if you officiated Shaq the same way that you officiated Iverson in, say, 2001, like... You'd have 80 80 free throws a game? Yeah, you couldn't field enough players on a team to to foul out going against Shaq. Like, I'm thinking about the play where he's, like, posting up to Kemba Matumbo, and he, like, backs him down and, like, literally lips him into the air like a foot. (laughs) Like, Iverson's not doing that. Like, you you just... It's contextual. You You gotta call it differently for different players. Well, we will um, 
look forward to what the second, third, fourth games bring. We'll see if there's any emergency podcasts later on in this week. But um, Cody, I have I've loved the playoffs so far. And um, any last words as we head into the first full week from you? Yeah, I would like to see uh, the sort of meta battle between different arenas and how much they mic up their nets. That's what I want to see. Because when you watch the Mavericks and you watch the Jazz play, that net is really mic'd up. Like, you hear a free throw go through, and it's like, like, it explodes. You watch another game, it's silent. No, I want every subsequent game to go a little bit louder until it is just the deafening fireworks of the shot falling through the net. That's what I want to see. If you want to support such arena battles, head on over to patreon.com slash thinking basketball. It's the best way to directly support all things Thinking Basketball and this podcast, patreon.com slash Thinking Basketball. We have extra content. We have a leaderboard of stats that updates regularly. We have live Q&As every month, um, extra film, especially in the playoffs. There usually is going to be some game where I rip off uh, a quick eight or ten minutes of thoughts from the night before. So patreon.com slash Thinking Basketball, best way to do that. As always, thanks for listening all the way to the end. Hope you enjoyed this one and that wherever you are, you are having a great day.